Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tonight on The Readout, we will contend that a a trial um, of these 19 uh, co-defendants will take four months, and that does not include jury selection. There are in excess of 150 witnesses that the state intends to call. Prosecutors in the Georgia election interference case say they're ready to try all 19 co-defendants together, including Donald Trump, but the judge does not seem to be on board with that plan. Plus, new reporting on the warning Trump received from his own lawyer that the FBI could search his Mar-a-Lago estate if Trump continued to refuse to hand over classified documents. And we begin tonight with the first televised hearing in Fonnie Willis' criminal case against former President Trump in Georgia. I'm Jason Johnson, in tonight for Joy Reid. The trial will be televised and is coming very soon. Today, we got a taste of what's to come. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee said he would not allow Kenneth Cheesebro to sever his case from Sidney Powell. Cheesebro and Powell are among the 19 defendants in the Georgia racketeering case. They have both asked for speedy trials. Cheesebro is accused of being the, quote, architect of the Trump elector scheme, while Sidney Powell is facing a slew of charges that include an effort to improperly access voting machines in rural Coffee County, Georgia. The defendants said their cases were different and they wanted to be tried separately. Prosecutor Wooten's response, that ain't the way this works. So we've heard a lot from both side, both, both defendants about they didn't know the other people. They were located thousands of miles apart. They didn't even know that the other parts of the conspiracy were going on. But the case law is clear that that does not matter. Um, of course, Anytime a person enters into a conspiracy, they are liable for all of the acts of all of their co-conspirators. And that's it. Evidence against one is evidence evidence against all. The prosecutor also reminded the court who this case is really about. Part of this RICO conspiracy involves victims. There are victims in this case um, that were targeted by members of the enterprise and their lives were turned upside down. And that's an important part of this case. And having those people come and testify multiple times over and over would both inconvenience, but more importantly, traumatize them. McAfee denied the defendant's request, meaning Cheesebro and Powell will stand trial together beginning on October 23rd. The judge is yet to schedule a date for the other 17 co-defendants, including Donald Trump. Earlier in the hearing, a prosecutor told McAfee that holding a joint trial for Trump and the other defendants would take Four months to complete with testimony from potentially more than 150 witnesses. That timeline doesn't even account for jury selection. All 19 defendants charged in the Fulton County case, including Trump, have pleaded not guilty and waived their right to an in-person arraignment, which have been scheduled for today. This marks the fourth time that Trump has formally denied charges this year. The judge said he was, quote, very skeptical of Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's plan to put all 19 defendants, including Trump, on trial next month adding that the plan seemed, quote, a bit unrealistic, given some of the complex legal and practical issues in the sprawling case. 
But he said he'd consider additional arguments. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Katie Fang, MSNBC legal contributor and host of The Katie Fang Show on Saturdays. Greg Bluestein, MSNBC political contributor and political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman from Florida who is no longer affiliated with that party. Katie Fang, we're going to start with you. You're down there in Atlanta. Um, you know, the judge is basically saying, hey, I appreciate the effort. I don't think you're going to be able to do this. What are some of the potential roadblocks here? I think it's reasonable to say that trying, you know, 17 people at the same time could be tough. What are the concerns from a legal standpoint about that? Does he feel that that the case would get jumbled? Does he feel that people who are guilty would end up getting off? What's the real concern there? Yeah, so Jason, that's a really good question and actually didn't get that deep. It was a kind of interesting exchange that was happening between Judge Scott McAfee at the state of Georgia, as well as defense attorneys for Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell. It was kind of who's going to blink first. I got to give credit to DA Fannie Willis's team. She put the kind of best of the best that she could in front of the judge today to basically say, Judge, we're ready to go. We're prepared to do all 19 defendants at one time with more than 150 witnesses. It'll take about four months, not excluding, not including, excuse me, jury selection. But the concerns that Judge McAfee raised were all valid ones. And they ran the gamut, Jason, from, you know, logistical concerns. How do I practically fit 19 defendants in one courtroom with all of their counsel? And I go through the process of not only pretrial motions, having them set for hearing, litigating them, getting rulings, and then going through jury selection. And then it actually went to the point of, you know, if there's not enough prejudice that each of the defendants is facing, that would merit the idea that they had to be tried on their own. So maybe I do buy into this idea that we're going to do 19 defendants at one time. What happens to the removal defendants? Are they still there? Have they gone to federal court and come back if the state has successfully won an appeal on that issue? And so there was a lot that Judge McAfee clearly had contemplated before today's hearing. The fact that he ruled immediately from the bench was a welcome thing. We always want to have the swift ruling from a judge. But we are waiting to hear the ultimate disposition, which is, will it be one trial, 19 defendants, or are we going to see two different trial settings? One on October 23rd for Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell, and then one way later on down the road for the remaining 17 defendants. Kate, I want to follow up on this because I, I, I wonder about this in the same way from some, a practical standpoint. Would it be possible that there would be a trial where, you know, multiple uh, defendants would be in, say, Zooms and they would Zoom in on the trial and they would have to lean out and, and speak to uh, and speak to their legal counsel? Does the legal counsel have to be there? Like just as a, a, a logistics matter, how could you try 17 people at once? Well, they actually would all have to appear in person. The Fulton County Courthouse is open and back to business. And so there are no Zoom trials that are being actually conducted behind me in the courthouse. And so you'd literally have everybody in one courtroom. And then what would happen is you would have each of the lawyers, and I and I kind of want to really set this up for people because they are wondering exactly the machinations on this. Each lawyer, Jason, has the chance to not only question potential jurors, but also be able to cross-examine the government's witnesses. 150 of them. Can you imagine? Each of them had the chance to get up and do cross-examination. It literally would last way longer than four months. And so I think Judge McAfee actually told the state, be careful what you wish for. I know you're ready to go, but there's a lot of stuff that I still need to brief. And so I want you to do it by next week, Tuesday, because you need to answer some of these questions before I set a trial. Greg, um, Fonnie Willis filed late today. She put in sort of her motions. There's some, there's some interesting things here I want to get your thoughts on. 
In the motion, she said, based on the doxing of Fulton County grand jurors and the Fulton County district attorney, it is clearly foreseeable that trial jurors will likely be doxed should their names be made available to the public. If that were to happen, the effect on jurors' ability to decide the issues before them impartially and without outside influence would undoubtedly be placed in jeopardy. Basically, what we're hearing here from D.A. Willis, Greg, is that there are going to be cameras in the courtroom, but due efforts are being made to keep these jurors sort of anonymous and safe. Is that one of the major concerns that people are thinking of downtown? Is it one of those things where it's like, okay, that's part of it, but we still think they'll be going to, you know, are they going to have to be sequestered? What are sort of the thoughts about this idea of of how to keep jurors safe? Yeah, certainly, Jason, because there's a century-old case law in Georgia that allows the public dissemination of the names of special grand jurors and grand jurors. And we saw just a few weeks ago, their names of the grand jurors who indicted, who successfully indicted former President Trump and the 18 other co-defendants were being plastered all over social media. They were being put on a Russian hosted website with confidential information. They were being targeted by far right conspiracy theorist websites. So now Lafani Willis actually disclosed that she too has been targeted on this same Russian hosted web server. So she's using that as an example of why uh, she wants the judge to restrict the public the publicization of the names of the grant of, of the potential jurors for when they get to that stage in this trial. Greg, we've talked about this in the past about the need for security once this trial actually begins. October, we don't know if it's going to be separate trials or together trials. Is there any effort being made by Governor Kemp? to make sure that jurors are safe. Our private security people, our state security people, is the GBI. Like, who's making sure that these people are safe when they go home? Or might we see a situation where every juror in this case ends up being sequestered? Yeah, the Georgia State Patrol is one of the largest law enforcement agencies in the state, and the state capital is just a few blocks away from the Fulton County Courthouse. So we certainly saw um, the last few weeks a, a heavy security presence from state patrol officers. I imagine we'll see the same coordination going forward, especially as this trial gets underway under heavy security. But remember, too, Fulton County, the city of Atlanta, they have enormous law enforcement agencies as well. So they have they have a number of officers at their disposal. David Jolly, you know, one of the things you're 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 a lawyer, you understand these things. I've watched enough legal shows to understand this. Usually the corner boys, the the, the small ended people, they will flip on the bigger guys, right? They're the ones who are gonna say, hey, I don't want to be involved with this one way or another. I have to ask you, you know, do we think as we get closer to any of these trial dates that someone's gonna flip? There's gotta be somebody at a lower oh, level sure. who's like, I'm not trying to go to jail for this. I'll flip on Trump. Do you think that's likely to happen? And and do you think it's gonna happen before October or will it happen after the trial begins? Yes, statistically, you would you are exactly right, Jason. Somebody is likely to say, Hey, I would like to cooperate if Bonnie Willis is willing to at this point. You know, it also requires her to suggest she's doing that. There's a basic theory in criminal defense called prisoner's dilemma, which is when you have multiple defendants, logically, if they all stick together, perhaps they have a good chance of defending themselves. But if one of them acts in self-interest and turns on the other, obviously that person can save their own freedom. And so who flips first becomes a bit of the dilemma and the question. So yes, I would expect we see some of the lesser, but look, Bonnie Willis's team made very clear today that every one of these 19 defendants is a peer. Donald Trump, yes, absolutely stands out among all of them, but he stands charged with the same statute that that uh, Sidney Powell does and Chesborough and Eastman and Mark Meadows and all of them now stand in equal stead. I think what's fascinating is 
if indeed we see two trials, like Katie said. So the judge today denied severance, saying we're not going to sever Chesborough and Powell. But it appears he might be willing to consider the class of defendants who want a speedy trial, Chesborough and right. Powell together, maybe Eastman, and then the remaining ones down the road. That actually sets up where we might have a verdict, either a conviction or an acquittal in that first case before the primary in the Republican Party for the presidential nomination and before Donald Trump's uh, determination. And so does that change a political dynamic or narrative? Perhaps. We just don't know. David, I, I want to go back to this because I thought it was interesting. You've got Cheeseboro and Powell saying, hey, uh, we want to be tried separately. We have different cases. One of the arguments that you hear sort of being floated already by some of these defense teams is like, hey, I never went to that county. I never had a conversation with this person. How can I be involved with this? Now, to my ears, that's the person saying, hey, look, I never met Darth Vader. Yeah, you worked at the Death Star, though. You're still kind (laughs) of responsible for this. You know, how strong is that argument? How strong is the argument that I can't be part of a conspiracy if I didn't know the other conspirators on a regular basis. Does that carry any weight in court? Well, it was strong until the judge ruled today, and Katie really knows this better than anyone. But that was essentially the argument of Chesborough and Powell, which is, hey, never met the person, didn't know what they were up to. Uh, Chesborough said, I was just doing legal briefs in an intellectual way, and Powell was tampering with voting machines in Coffee County. These are clearly separate acts. However, they were charged under RICO. And what RICO says is they were part of a common enterprise advancing a common scheme. They didn't actually have to know exactly what the other one was doing, nor did they have to coordinate if they were all supporting this enterprise. And so, though today was somewhat of just a procedural ruling on saying we are not going to sever, it showed a lot of the judge's approach to this. And that approach is a willingness to accept and give credence to the RICO charge that allows the prosecutors to say all 19 of these are in the same boat, whether they ever met each other or not. Katie, I want to flip to a national issue really quick. We just heard uh, Trump in the Gene Carroll case. This is key. Trump is liable for defamation in the second E. Gene Carroll case. The judge rules writer uh, that basically what's going to happen now is rather than having to go through heavier trials, we're just going to hear about sentencing. We're just going to hear about fines. What do you think the significance of this case? I've always thought that the Gene Carroll case is not just another example of sort of Trump's moral depravity, but also one of the cases that we might get the quickest answer on. What's the significance of this most recent ruling? Yeah, so as we know, E. Jean Carroll went to a jury trial in May of 2023, got a verdict that basically said Donald Trump is a sexual abuser and he is liable for defamation. A jury awarded her $5 million in damages. Donald Trump has taken that verdict up on appeal. If you will recall, Jason, back in 2019, when Donald Trump was still the president of the United States, he defamed E. Jean Carroll by claiming that he didn't know her and he denied sexually assaulting her. That is the gravamen. That's the crux of this particular case that a federal judge in New York has said, you know what, based upon what the jury found in that trial that just happened a few months ago, as a matter of law, E. Jean Carroll does not have to carry her burden again to prove to a jury that Donald Trump defamed her. So we're just going to fast track it now straight to the damages part of this case. We're going to go to a trial in January. E. Jean's going to put on a case as to how much she has been damaged and a jury can award her to its discretion zero to whatever amount of money that it wants. 
Now, remember also, there's punitive damages that are at play here. There was punitives that were awarded for E. Jean Carroll back in that original trial a few months ago. What's also an important ruling that came out from the judge today, Jason, is that Donald Trump was trying to say, you know, E. Jean Carroll, she got some money. So whatever she gets in January from me, it's got to be a set off from what, you know, the award ends up being. And the judge said, no dice. There is nothing that prohibits E. Jean Carroll from being able to get more money. The biggest kind of consequence of this ruling is the following. It just goes to show that Donald Trump is a proven liar. And when you have this many criminal cases pending and your credibility as a criminal defendant may come into play, either because other defendants say that you have done something or you yourself are crazy enough to take the stand, which Donald Trump says he's willing to do. If you already have findings that he's a liar, it may not be admissible in your criminal trial. But trust me, in the court of public opinion was a potential jury pool. They know he's a liar. We ain't got the lie, Trump. We already see the record. Thank you, Katie Fang, Greg Bluestein, and David Jolly for starting us up on The Readout. Up next, brand new reporting on another one of Trump's alleged crimes, the classified documents case. The Readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We're learning new details today about one of Trump's federal cases involving the trove of classified documents he stowed in the bathroom and the ballroom and anywhere else he could of his Florida resort and refused to give back to the government for a year. NBC News has confirmed reporting that the former president was warned months in advance by his attorney, Evan Corcoran, that Mar-a-Lago could be searched by the FBI if he didn't comply with the grand jury subpoena. This was the This was first reported by ABC News, which obtained the transcript of a series of voice memos Corcoran recorded on his own phone, including one where he reportedly says that minutes after that meeting with Trump, another lawyer warned him that, quote, Trump would go ballistic if Corcoran pushed him to comply with the subpoena and that there's no way he's going to agree to anything and that he was going to deny that there were any more boxes at all, which, spoiler alert, is basically what ended up happening. NBC News has not seen these transcripts or heard the audio. Joining me now to discuss is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, law professor at Georgetown University and MSNBC legal analyst. Paul, so I'll I'll start with this. I think it's very interesting that you have a news outlet that got access to notes (laughs) that a lawyer took about his client. It's not necessarily violation of attorney-client privilege, but where does this fall into the sort of legal haze? Because I, I, I don't I don't know if that's a violation. I don't know if that's something that could be used in, in, in other sorts of indictments. Where does this where's this play? So we know that Jack Smith was able to get this testimony from Evan Corcoran 
Corcoran was Trump's lawyer, and typically the attorney-client privilege would protect all of their communications. But a federal judge ruled that Donald Trump tried to use Corcoran, his own lawyer, to further a criminal scheme. Okay. And for that reason, the judge allowed the, the um, privilege between the attorney and the client to be breached. And thus, Jack Smith has access to this gold mine of evidence. Jason, this is not a typical case. When the prosecutor has very incriminating evidence from the defendant's own defense lawyer, it's not only incriminating, it's especially credible. Yeah, I mean, this is this is different than sort of, you know, you, you catch a cheating spouse, hand me your phone. I mean, this is a guy's lawyer. He's obviously taking contemporaneous notes of the things that he has, you know, how unprecedented is this? I mean, I, I've not heard of something like this where the defense attorney is basically like, yeah, take my phone because this guy tried to get me involved in a criminal conspiracy. Especially when you think about the evidence that that phone contained. Extraordinarily incriminating remarks from Trump. He said at one point, um, I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. And he specifically said to his lawyer, Corcoran, I don't want you looking through the boxes. He said, what happens if we just say that we don't have any documents? Jason, that's not smoking gun. That's almost a confession. Again, this is vital to the government's case they, for both the espionage charge and the obstruction charge related to the classified documents. They have to prove criminal intent, Trump's willful state of mind that he knew that he was breaking the law. All of this evidence corroborates that. So- Help me out here, because what is the line at which a lawyer would 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 potentially do something like this? Because, hey, you're talking to your client. Let's say it's a criminal trial, right? I could be talking to my client. Maybe he's a mobster. He's like, you know what? If we could just make the cops disappear or something like that. People say things in attorney client. How far does it have to go for the attorney to be like, hey, I can't have this conversation anymore or anything else you say at this point, I have to turn it over? What's what's that line generally in, in, a, in a legal case? So I think when Corcoran was taking these contemporary notes, he was thinking of two things. One, he was just being a good defense attorney. Right. He was going to have a lot of meetings with Trump. Trump famously says different things depending on the time of the day it is. So he just wanted a record. The other thing for any Trump lawyer, see why, but cover your butt, yes. okay? Yeah. Because he knows what kind of client this is. For example, uh, Corcoran told Trump, I don't care what you say. If I attest to the court that I've looked for these documents, I'm going to look for the documents. I'm going to come back two weeks and I'm going to look in that storage room, which is where Trump had told him all of the documents were. But we now know within that time, Trump directed two of his employees to move that stuff out of the storage room, which is why the indictment charges that Trump knowing and intentionally lied, not only to the FBI, but to his own lawyer, Evan Corcoran. Check this out. If it couldn't get any more wild, Corcoran is likely to be a witness for the prosecution <laughs> in the Mar-a-Lago case. He's still defending Trump in the January 6th prosecution. Yeah, this is interesting. I, I, I I, I can't imagine a more ridiculous example of the worst client for anybody to have one way or another. And, and I have to ask you, because I always think this is important just from a legal standpoint. You know, just put yourself in a lawyer's brain. I get that there's money involved, but why would anyone, you know, Trump is going to get other lawyers. He burns through lawyers all the time. Why does anyone want to work with a guy who seems like he's always going to get you in trouble? 
So we can answer that generally. Everybody who's accused has the right to an excellent defense lawyer. It's good news that finally Trump has some lawyers who know what they're doing. Right. Uh, defense attorneys, they like risk. They like problematic clients, but they don't like clients who act against their own interests. And so I think the biggest problem that Trump's defense team will have with them is his constantly going on TV and blabbing, which is not only a violation of the orders of the judges and the right. four cases in which he's prosecuted, it's just not in his best interest. So you have a client who's trying to go to jail, it looks like. Right. It's like he's committed to screwing up his own case. Um, speaking of a case where no one screwed up. I actually think justice was done. Uh, we got former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio. He got 22 years for his part in a January 6th insurrection. Now, look, this is not something that saddens most Americans who are concerned about democracy. Enrique Tarrio had a long history of working with the Proud Boys. They are a, a, a white nationalist organization. They're dangerous. He got a longer sentence than almost anybody else. I want you to sort of take us back. What do you think is, is that now setting a precedent, Right. If he gets 22 years, does that mean as these cases go further up the ladder? Because he's just a foot soldier, right? Yes. He, he is a pawn. Does this mean that if a, a member of Congress or higher level people, that they're likely to get at least 22 years? Or is this something that you think was just specific to him and sort of the Proud Boys organization? So not legally significant in the sense that when a judge sentences someone, she's not creating any legal precedent. So that's not binding the judge in other sentences. But judges do like what's called proportionality. That right. is, they like to treat similar cases alike. And when someone's more culpable, they want that person to be punished more. By the end of this year, 2,000 people will have been prosecuted in relation to January 6th. The vast majority, the foot soldiers, the so-called MAGA tourists who just showed up at the Capitol, can't say just because what they did was extraordinary, but moving up the chain. So uh, Enrico Tario, maybe not like a line soldier, maybe more like an officer, but not a general. The generals we know are people like Giuliani, right. John Eastman, Sidney Powell, and Donald Trump. And certainly a judge will have to think in sentencing any of those people, can I really give the people who organized finance and led this insurrection less time than I gave the people who just carried out their criminal will? Paul Butler, I love talking to you because I always feel smarter. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Coming up, an alarming criminal case out of Georgia. Some are calling it anti-democratic. That includes me. 61 activists have been indicted on RICO charges? Yes, RICO charges connected to their attempt to put a stop to the construction of a colossal police training facility, better known as Cop City. More details next on The Readout with Jason Johnson. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr is attempting to copy and paste the same RICO law used to charge Donald Trump to punish protesters battling police militarization. On Tuesday, 61 people were indicted on racketeering charges over protests against construction of a massive public safety training center opponents call Cop City. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution confirmed that the same grand jury that indicted Trump and his allies on RICO charges was also involved in this case. The protesters and a majority of local residents opposed the 85-acre facility in a forest outside Atlanta and neighboring DeKalb County. Among their concerns, the facility is going to cost $90 million. It will have a massive environmental impact, getting rid of a large forest that keeps down the heat in the area and the potential for over-policing in Metro Atlanta. Some of the people indicted yesterday already faced charges related to the protests, including three activists charged with money laundering for running a bail fund, three charged with felony intimidation for distributing flyers with the names of police officers allegedly involved in the killing of a protester, and more than three dozen people facing domestic terrorism charges, including an attorney who is acting as a legal observer. Joining me now to discuss is Christopher Bruce, policy director for the ACLU of Georgia and Jackie Jack Crosby, correspondent for Rolling Stone. Jack, I'll start with you. Um, this is this is amazing to me in all the worst possible ways. Tell us a little bit about what is going on here. Does this is this just intimidation or does this attorney really think they're going to be able to successfully get a bunch of protesters thrown in jail for racketeering? I mean, in, in certain cases, he already has. Um, you know, the, this attorney general and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations have been arresting protesters throughout this movement and putting them in jail um, for long periods of time in um, Atlanta's metropolitan det- detention facility, which is known as one of the worst uh, sort of pr- temporary prisons in the world. Um, and it, it doesn't really matter to him, I think, whether or not all of these charges stick, what charges stick, because this is the strategy that they've said. If you're connected to this movement whatsoever and you're arrested for basically any crime that could even conceivably be linked to thinking about this movement, you're going to be slapped with some of the most you know, brutal legal accusations that the state can level against you. Christopher, I, I want to sort of move back a bit from not just these sort of RICO charges against protesters, but let's talk a little bit about this whole cop city situation to begin with. What you have is this is a $90 million police training facility. 
even though the Metro Police have another training facility in Macon just about an hour or two away. And, quote, the nonprofit Atlanta Police Foundation is working to raise millions for construction. Eighty percent of the money comes from private donations. The foundation's board is filled with executives from nearly all of Atlanta's big name companies like Delta, Waffle House, The Home Depot, Georgia Pacific, Equifax, Carter, Accenture, Wells Fargo and UPS, among others. It reads like a who's who of corporate Atlanta. So we're talking about land that is owned by the city of Atlanta, but it's being leased to this private foundation. How the heck does this private foundation have access to this much sort of, uh, you know, government resources? And is this Atlanta Police Foundation putting pressure on government apparatus to go after protesters? Well, Jason, first, thanks for having me. And thank you for bringing that up, because a lot of these corporations are funding millions of dollars to build a facility instead of investing into the communities, which we know is what really leads to public safety uh, increasing in the state. So yes, not only are these corporations doing this, a lot of these people who run these corporations either do not live in the city of Atlanta or don't even live in the state of Georgia at all. So as what you're talking about is the Atlanta Police Foundation putting pressure on corporations, could be the other way around. It could be the corporations putting pressure on the Atlanta Police Foundation to increase this. And like you said before, there are other jurisdictions where this is happening. The Atlanta Police Department can train. They have been training. They've been training in other places everywhere else. Do they need an 84-acre facility to do this? Known as Cop City? No, they don't. And I believe there's over 100,000 people who have signed uh, signatures to mark that. And that's what the city of Atlanta is going to have to deal with in a referendum coming soon. Jack, I want to talk a little bit about this referendum, because this is what's interesting. A lot of times, if you have local politicians, right, and, and, and there's something they want to push through, but they try to wiggle out of it, any responsibility, like, oh, we'll have a referendum, but they'll have, like, the worst wording possible. They'll say, like, do you not not want me to sort of kind of make this thing happen in a way to sort of get the policies through? But what we're seeing right now is that voting rights activists, according to Mother Jones, voting rights activists in Atlanta are condemning the fact that the cop city referendum the state is going to use signature checks and, and go line by line through these referendums in order to basically invalidate people who might stand against this voting center. Uh, first off, talk a little bit about what this signature check may actually look like. And then second, why would anyone want to put together a referendum and then make sure the referendum is not reflective of the people? Right. And this is this is sort of one step in, in what's been a, a pretty classic campaign by Atlanta city officials and the people who support uh, the cop city project to kind of slow down and keep public input out of this process entirely. Um, this goes back to the very beginning, the first proposals for cop city and the first time that this actually came before the city council vote in which there were 17 hours of public comment, um, which, you know, activists combed through and found that the vast majority of was against Cop City. Um, that vote still went through the city council. It's passed every single time. As far as these signatures being collected goes, um, you know, this has also been waylaid at every possible opportunity. Uh, a federal judge had to rule last month that people who were not residents of the city of Atlanta could still do some of the signature collecting duties. So you, you obviously have activists who care about this case coming in from all over Georgia and from other places in the country that are wanting to you know, pound the pavement for this and collect signatures. The signatures must be from Atlanta city residents themselves because it's their tax dollars that may be going to fund this center. But 
you know, there's there there shouldn't be anything that says that every activist has to prove that they have an Atlanta address to sign these signatures. So the the verification process is sort of just another step in this and that despite, you know, over 100,000 signatures collected, they're going to try and throw out as many as they can. Quick question to you, Bruce. We're running up against a break. Uh, is the mayor going to lose his job over this? Because this seems to be incredibly unpopular. He seems to be in agreement with this foundation to try and slide this thing through, despite sort of the, the public disenchantment with it. What could be the political consequences in the next mayor's race? Well, that, that is the question that's going into this. And me and Mayor Dickens uh, actually disagree about this. I'm against Cop City. But I will respect that he is the mayor of Atlanta. He was elected for that compared to an attorney general like Chris Carr, who is not only mentioned the 61 indictments, but in that indictment, he mentions that the conspiracy happened during the George Floyd's murder that happened 11 months before Cop City was proposed in the first place. So not only will there be ramifications in the city of Atlanta, we can also look at the attorney general who is looking at running for governor here right. and is using this as a political ploy. Right. Christopher Bruce and Jack Crosby, we were definitely coming back to the story. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Up next, Wisconsin Republicans seek to impeach a duly elected liberal justice on the state Supreme Court because they don't like her politics. The Democratic Party chair is calling it a legislative coup. He joins me next on The Readout. In April, more than one million Wisconsin voters packed backed liberal Supreme Court nominee Janet Protasiewicz. She beat her conservative challenger by a resounding 11-point margin. It was a powerful statement fueled by a public rejection of restricting reproductive rights. And it gave liberal justices a majority on the court for the first time in decades. She took the bench in August with a series of important cases set to make their way to the court, including the state's offensively gerrymandered maps, abortion access, and voting access almost immediately after her victory, though. Republicans began floating the idea of impeaching protosewins, effectively nullifying the will of the voters. Today, Senate Republicans gathered to discuss their options for impeaching her if she does not recuse herself from redistricting cases. They claim she can't be impartial because during her campaign, she said that the current congressional maps are rigged to benefit one party, which is true. Here's the thing. Those statements do not meet the standard for impeachment or recusal. How do we know? Well, right-wing Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley once compared abortion to slavery and the Holocaust. We talked about that on this show. Nobody impeached her for that. Just yesterday, a state judiciary disciplinary panel rejected complaints about the comments from Protosawitz. But that doesn't really matter because Republicans have their own unprecedented plan to impeach and block Democratic Governor Tony Evers from replacing her. How? They could vote to impeach the justice, but not convict. We're going a little schoolhouse rock here. If impeached, she would have to immediately stop performing her duties as a judge, effectively sidelining her without actually replacing her, leaving a deadlocked Supreme Court. And guess what? They've got the votes to do that because of a gerrymandered supermajority. See how these things connect? The threat of impeachment is being used by Republicans all across the country right now. In Georgia, they want to remove Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And in North Carolina, they're trying to remove Anita Earls, the state's only black female Supreme Court justice, for speaking out about racial bias in the court. 
Joining me now, Ben Wickler, the chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. He calls these taxes a legislative coup. He's not wrong. He joins me now. Ben, thank you so much for this. Look, I, this is this is insane. And like I said, it's I had to go schoolhouse rock because a lot of intimate details to this. But I want to start with today. There was a meeting of Republicans at the State House today. Do you have any word as to what their conclusion was from this meeting? Now that they're taking national heat, are they sort of backing off? Are they still emboldened? Where are we at right now? Jason, uh, thanks so much for covering this. This is a real constitutional crisis moment. As far as I can tell, there's no state anywhere where a sitting Supreme Court justice has been impeached on purely political grounds because the legislature didn't like what they thought that justice was going to do. So this could open Pandora's box. We we know Republicans right now are trying to not say anything publicly, but we're also getting the vibes that a lot of Republicans can feel in the pit of their stomach that this is a bad idea. And I'm talking about, you know, secondhand conversations that are happening across the state. When you call your state legislator, if you're a Wisconsinite, you've got to make absolutely clear that you're against this. And I think we, we might see Republicans start to break ranks because they know that this is wrong. Even if you are the, the furthest right wing or the furthest left or anywhere in between, if you just impeach people when you disagree with their politics, our whole constitutional order can fall apart in a flash. And that's why we're asking everyone to go to defendjustice.com. We're asking every Wisconsinite to contact their legislators now and ask them to come out publicly with their position, not behind closed doors. We need to shut this impeachment threat down and avert a constitutional catastrophe. Now, at the state assembly, you've got 99 members. It only takes a simple majority uh, to to impeach someone. And the Republicans have a supermajority. They got 64 members. They, they can lose up to 12 assembly people. But I'm looking at the numbers here. There are 12 assembly Republicans and six Senate Republicans whose districts voted for Janet Protasiewicz this spring. Are you specifically targeting those six? Are you saying, hey, you know, or, or those 12 and saying, hey, guys, this is going to blow up in your faces soon? Uh, or is it sort of a general conversation that you're, you're, you're doing throughout the state on how this is sort of a violation of the public will? Right now, as I talk to you, there are volunteers knocking on doors, talking to voters who voted, we think, for Janet Protasiewicz this spring to tell them your state senator, your state representative is considering nullifying your vote, throwing out the election because they didn't like the results, and then asking voters to contact their legislators. This is a political disaster for Republicans. It's going to backfire so colossally if they move forward with this. It'll make the, the 2022 midterms in Wisconsin, where Republicans lost the governor's race, look like child's play. Uh, Republicans are playing with fire in a dynamite factory, but they think that this might be, I guess, their only way to lock in gerrymandered maps that give them total control. I, I Even if it's good for Democrats uh, in statewide elections, I think Republicans should back off, and I think everyone across the political spectrum will celebrate if they do, uh, we are absolutely talking to Republicans who districts went, whose districts went for Janet. But re also, with, re bear in mind, there are Janet Protasiewicz voters in every district. Many people who actually had never voted before voted in the right. spring Supreme Court election this spring. Republicans will lose them for life if they don't back off this immediately. Ben, we've got about a minute left, but I got to ask you this because, look, I look, the, the, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin has been a model. You guys have gone at it. You have been raising money. You have been organizing on the ground. You're winning the statewide races. What advice would you give 
to other Democratic parties in places like Florida and North Carolina and Ohio who, who always seem to be playing catch up with these local issues. How have you been able to galvanize your voters in ways that state Democratic parties and other places just haven't managed to do yet? Well, I will say that the chairs in each of those three states, they have new chairs and they're doing the thing that that I would advise anyone to do, which is to build a year round grassroots organizing operation, not wait until the fall of the even numbered election year. Right now, the people knocking on doors in their own neighborhoods across Wisconsin in Republican districts are people who've done that in this spring in the Supreme Court election last year in the midterms in 2020. And we'll do it again in 2024 with a year round presence that makes all the difference. And that's what's going to help Sherrod Brown win will help us win North Carolina in 2024. And let's look at Florida, too. Thank you, Wisconsin Democratic Chair Ben Wickler, for the work that you do. It is a model for everybody else in the country. Thank you so much. Up next, a terrifying warning from the U.N. on the climate crisis. We'll be right back. This is The Readout. Labor Day typically marks the end of summer, but those of us on the East Coast and in the South are currently in a heat wave with 49 million people experiencing dangerous levels of heat. It was 91 degrees this morning here in D.C. It's just one more extreme in a summer of extremes with devastating wildfires, flooding, hurricanes and unsafe air quality. Today, the United Nations announced that this has been the Northern Hemisphere's hottest summer on record with the U.N. Secretary General saying in a terrifying statement that our climate breakdown has begun and calling for countries to take serious action. Yet, we still have politicians denying that any of this is real, despite the record numbers of lives that will be lost and the material cost, with the U.S. already experiencing a $15 billion level of costs and disasters this year. we got to start taking this seriously. And that's tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.